Glad to have you with us here this morning uh, as we close out 2014. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to continue through the Game Changer series that Tom started here earlier this month. We're talking about different stories, encounters uh, with, in, with people in the Bible and the Gospels, especially who encountered Jesus and their lives were forever changed. Um, and so as we get to that, I want to ask you a quick question because we're talking this morning about Simeon and Anna. So full honesty, show of hands, how many of you know who Simeon and Anna are? All right. Okay, see, most of you are in good company, all right? This is a really small part of Luke's gospel. Um, it happens right after the, the big part of the Christmas story, right? We have our manger scene. And then before Luke jumps into uh, this, the life and ministry of Jesus as an adult, there's these few verses about Simeon and Anna that, um, that Luke shares with us. And so we're going to talk a little bit about them, this prophet and prophetess that, um, that encountered the baby Jesus. And so... Before we do that, because the theme uh, is heavy this morning on uh, anticipation, I want to share a quick story uh, with you about anticipation. If you can think to a time in your life where you've anticipated something greatly, there's been a lot of waiting, uh, anticipation, and hope uh, for something to finally come, and, um, and then it, it fi- finally came there. For us, um, my wife and I, about a month ago, on November 28th, uh, celebrated uh, kind of our nine-year anniversary, we call it our, our gotcha day, with uh, our youngest son, Mac. We have three boys. Um, Mac is the youngest, and we adopted Mac from Guatemala. And so nine years ago on November 28th, uh, we got to hold him for the first time. And I could talk for hours about how fun and amazing and what an ama- a wonderful experience that moment was. But I couldn't do it without going into about two years of backstory and about the depression and the despair and the frustration and the anxiety and the hope and the uncertainty. Because all of that was part of that story that led up to that moment. That moment was so amazing for us because of everything that we had walked through to get there. The details uh, in the process uh, for international adoption were just kind of staggering. And my wife was amazing. She ran point on all of that. We did everything we possibly could to be in place to do that. But even along the way, there was a a point about a year in where we got a phone call we thought was going to be the, hey, book your plane tickets, come meet your son phone call. And it wasn't. It was, hey, the, the child who you were going to adopt is no longer available. And if you want to still do this, you're going to have to start the process over. And so through that story, there was a lot of heartache. And I remember there were family and friends who uh, were just an incredible support uh, for us at that time and, and how difficult that was. A few ministry, people in ministry here at Sherwood and, and leaders that were just uh, so wonderful to us, our small group uh, at the time, good friends who walked through that with us. But it got us to this point where there, there was this amazing anticipation. There was this ama- amazing moment that ended us with us holding a baby boy. And man, would we change anything? No way. Was it worth the wait? Absolutely. And so that's kind of what the scene is this morning. We're going to get to Simeon and Anna, and Mary and Joseph take the baby Jesus to the temple to present him. And Simeon and Anna get to hold the baby Jesus. And we're going to talk a little bit about their anticipation and why this was a game changer for them. And so at some point in your faith, and some point in my faith, there's an event, there's a season where we look around and we want to ask, where is God, right? Where is God? Why the waiting? Why the heartache? Why, would, why? I just want something good to happen. So why, God, why can't this just happen? And in the midst of our hope, we just want to know and be reminded that God cares. And if we could have it our way, we want to know what he plans to do about our suffering. The arrival of Jesus is a reminder 
that even if we don't get what we want in those times, and even if we're not, you're in a season like that right now where you're just anticipating, you're hoping, you're just wanting healing, you're just wanting things to get better, for brokenness to be mended. God is at work in this world, and that's what the story is about. And so eight days after the manger scene, uh, uh, when Jesus is taken to the temple, we read that Simeon and Anna... um, it's, the text says that Simeon was awaiting the consolation of Israel. And it says that uh, Anna was in touch with those uh, who were awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. So they were looking for consolation. They were looking for redemption. So what's implied here is in their lives, in the brief description we get about them, there is a sense of longing. They're waiting for something. Okay? It says that Anna fasted. Fasting isn't something you do when everything is great. Fasting is typically something that happens and is attached with longing and waiting. And so what was it that they were waiting for? And as we answer that question this morning, um, I want to look, look at kind of the world that they lived in. And so to look at that world, we have to, we have to look at the Roman Empire. Um, and so the Roman Empire ruled the world at that time. And I want to ask the question, what the world was Jesus like that, was like when Jesus was born into it, and how did Rome rule that world? So we're going to run through a little history here real quick. I'll try to make it as fast and painless as possible. Um, First slide, Germanicus was a Roman general. Uh, The historian Tacitus writes that Germanicus ruthlessly slaughtered the general populace across the Rhine. For 50 miles around, he wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Only the destruction of the race would end the war. So the the historian goes on to write, his aim was to punish, to avenge, and terrify. That's the Roman general Germanicus. All right, next slide. This is uh, Pompey. So you, they, in Instagram only had one filter back then. It was statue. And so uh, that's why we have all these lovely pictures uh, here. And so um, this is our, our, our Pompey selfie. We have uh, Pompey conquered the East in AD 64. Uh, in the Temple of Minerva in Rome, it said that Pompey boasted over 12 million subjects in surrender in over 1,500 towns. Okay. The next slide. This is a Greek historian, Diodorus Sisoulis. I know many of you are reading Sisoulis this time of year, and so you're probably familiar with this. But he states that Rome makes the boundaries of its empire equal to the boundaries of the earth and safeguards the Roman re- revenues, or the revenues of the Romans and increased some of them. So this Greek historian, his observation at looking at the expansion of the Roman empire is that their goal is to get bigger and to get more. And how do they do this? If we see it with their generals, they do this on the backs of the oppressed. They do this by taxing and oppressing people so that they can get bigger and that they can have more. The next slide, uh, this is another general, Titus. Historian Josephus writes this, that some five of his conquests, that some 500 or more were captured daily. And then he goes on, he continues, the soldiers were out of rage and hatred, amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures. And so great was their number that space could not be found for the crosses, nor crosses for the bodies. For Jesus and his people, and his family, these were not events that were far off in remote parts of the world. Listen to where some of these things happen. Richard Horsley writes a book uh, called Jesus and Empire, and he talks about the Roman general Varus. And listen to about Varus. Look at some of the names of the cities you'll recognize. Then in 4 BCE, Varus's troops burned down the town of Sepphoris and enslaved the inhabitants. This destruction and mass enslavement would have affected people in every village in the immediate area of Sepphoris, such as Nazareth, only a few miles away. 
Similarly, in the Judean hill country, Varus destroyed the village Emmaus. The Roman killing or enslavement of tens of thousands of Galileans and Judeans around the time Jesus was born must have left mass trauma among the people in its wake. The brutality of these Roman generals goes on and on. And this is just a sample. These are samples of about 50 years before and 50 years after Jesus' birth, spanning that, that time that he was born. Um, there, these accounts come from Greek and Roman and Jewish historians, and it's in the midst of this world that Jesus was born. Now, why are these generals doing this? For what purpose are they doing this? And who do they answer to? At, this is at a time of the world in, where the Rome, Roman Empire was led by a line of Caesars. Okay? The first Caesar, you're probably familiar with the name Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar uh, led, and he began to consolidate Rome, transition it from a republic to an empire, but he kind of ruled in tandem with the Senate. He didn't quite consolidate all power under himself because he was busy inventing a salad and absurdly cheap pizza <laughs> that he had to get going. So after Julius Caesar, though, there was, uh, his, pre his uh, successor was named Augustus Caesar. And so this is what we read in the book of Luke chapter 2, right? That in the, those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. That's this guy. So Caesar Augustus, uh, he apparently uh, sported a small cabbage patch doll on his toga wherever he went. Um, and so, but Caesar Augustus, his, his notoriety, what was, he was known for, um, and, and coined the term, there was a term in, in the ancient world, even in the days of the New Testament writers, called Pax Romana, which is Latin for Roman peace, all right? And, then, and sometimes it was referred to as Pax Augustus. There's a picture here of some coins, I think, from that era. Um, you can't quite make it out, but there's an inscription on the back of the coin that says Pax Augustus. So, I mean, these are the coins of Jesus' day, right? So when the Pharisees are testing Jesus and they say, well, who do we, you know, do we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, whose picture is on that coin, and they say it's Caesar Augustus, right? These are, this is that world that, 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 uh, that Jesus is addressing. And this idea of Roman peace, or the, the peace of Augustus, this referred to a few centuries of peace under the empire of Rome, which was basically Rome looking around and realized they had killed everyone or taken control of every possible threat or resistance in, their, in the, the known world the peace of Rome, the peace of Caesar Augustus. So Rome apparently was a very peaceful empire. If you were Roman and you were prospering off the oppression of other people. However, for those crucified, decimated, enslaved, and terrorized, the modern historian Walter Goffert states that in the study of Pax Romana, or Roman peace, that peace is not what one finds in its pages. So what was the world like that Jesus was born into? When we read in those days that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that he wanted this head count to measure the size of his empire. It's a day where generals torched the earth, torched villages, and just flattened anyone who would not bow down to Rome, declare Caesar is Lord, and pay their taxes and get in line. This is the world that Jesus was born into. This is the world where Simeon and Anna would go to the temple, where they, where they lived a devout life, where they, where they honored the scriptures of their past and tried steadily to follow and, 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 and know God in a world where Rome was, had conquered them. Their brief history, they knew that their, their ancestors had been exiled to Babylon, and now they're back at Rome, and they've just traded one form of oppression to the others. And these are 
Jews who tell the story of the Exodus, right? They tell the story to their children that God is in charge, that Israel's God is the one true God of this world. And can you imagine the questions of the children? Well, if God's in charge of the world, then why are those people on crosses lining the roads? This is the world that Jesus was born into. And it would seem that Simeon and Anna, like any Jew, would just cling, would cling to promises of the promises of God. Remember that God had delivered His people from an oppressor before; that He had established a, a kingdom in an, a, under a good king with King David in, in Israel's better days. And the words like the prophet Isaiah: "For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on His shoulders. And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace." So let's look. Simeon and Anna's response when they hold the baby Jesus. This is in Luke chapter 2. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And skipping a few verses down, verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Simeon was righteous and he was waiting on consolation and Anna was as well and she was waiting on the redemption of Jerusalem. And in the midst of their waiting, in the oppression of Rome, after God had been more silent and felt more distant than they probably would have liked, they got to behold a child, a baby boy. And it wasn't only a game changer in their lives. It, was a change, it would mark the changing of the world forever because now there would be a new kind of kingdom led by a new kind of king. And let's consider that reality today, right? Where is the Roman Empire today? Where are the Caesars? Julius Caesar died. Caesar Augustus, died. Caesar Tiberius, dead. Vespasian, dead. Nero, dead. Do you notice a trend here? <laughs> the emperors Titus, Domitian, all dead. But Jesus lives. Jesus lives. This is a new kingdom. And this is what Simeon and Anna had. The, their, they, this is what they foresaw when they held the baby Jesus. They knew that God was moving again. After all the silence and all the waiting, they knew that God was at work in this world. And he was moving on behalf of of his people again. And Luke goes to expand this, and Luke, makes, uh, Luke is the only Gentile author in the Bible. Luke makes a point time and time again to show how this goes on, not only to the promise to the Jews, but also to the rest of the world, how this is that, the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham back in the day that through Israel, all of the world would be blessed. And so if there was, um, so in this moment, where Simeon responds, he holds the baby Jesus, he sings this song, this little song about that I can go in peace now because I have seen your salvation. And we sing a song Wednesday night, if you're here at the Christmas Eve service, I love the words in the song, O Holy Night. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name all oppression shall cease. This is a new kind of kingdom. It's not trading a Babylon for a Rome. 
It's the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God, and it will outlast all of the earthly kingdoms that come and chase after the way of Rome. Now, in the midst of this, though, in the midst of this world, it doesn't answer the question, why the pain, why the waiting, why the silence, why the suffering? And I don't know the answer to all of those questions, but I trust in this idea of what N.T. Wright states when he says, Jesus doesn't explain why there is suffering, illness, and death in the world. He brings healing and hope. He doesn't allow the problem of evil to be the subject of a seminar. He allows evil to do its worst to him. He exhausts it, drains it of its power, and emerges with new life. Jesus invites you and I to share in new life. He is making all things new. Now, um, within this text, within this text of anticipation, there's a couple of verses I want to talk about that I skipped over earlier where Simeon states, and it kind of goes, I don't know how to fit them into the first part of the sermon, to be honest with you. So here's the sermon part two, and it's really short, so don't worry. All right. Um, Simeon says this to Mary and Joseph in in chapter 33. It says, um, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And so it's anticipation of Mary. Mary's going to see Jesus crucified on the cross one day. And so in the midst of this celebration, there's this, there's this warning. And why would the Savior cause the rising and falling of many? I mean, if he's the Savior, why, could, why wouldn't it just be the rising of everyone? Well, I think in the midst of this, um, there's this theme that we begin to see unpacked between people as they encounter this new kind of king and this new kind of kingdom. And it happens for you and I, I think, today as well. Um, It foreshadows that God's victory over the empires of this world will be marked with suffering. It anticipates that many in Israel were not going to get the kind of victory they wanted, which the more and more we read in the New Testament and the disciples and the people around Jesus, they just wanted Jerusalem to become the new Rome. Oftentimes, they just wanted their nation to rise up, have the military power to oppress the oppressors. All right? That's not the kind of kingdom that God was establishing. And so it turns out that many people back then were confused about God's plan for the world. They had half of the picture, but not the whole picture. They knew about the king they wanted. They were less certain about this king that God said they needed. And the problem with getting it half right is the unintended results. The unintended results of what happens when you got half of something, but not the whole picture. So I'm going to share this this story real quick that... um, uh, there was a, a little over a year ago, uh, I was playing Nintendo Wii with my son, Clive. He's my middle boy, and um, at, up until this point, um, it, Wii bowling for him wasn't much fun because Dad dominated him. It was, it was, it was pretty intense, and, and, and there was this day, though, uh, where uh, it, it was finally his time, and it was clear that in the 10th frame, we had both started on the sofa, kind of back by the sofa, TV, and um, he's every frame. He's a little closer to the TV. He's a little closer to the TV. He knows he's got me, and he wins, and he stands, and he looks at the TV, and he looks back at me, and he says, Dad, moist your eyes. Moist your eyes. To which I said what you're thinking right now, what? (laughs) And he's like, moist your eyes. 
moisture. And I said, what are you talking about? And through a conversation, we unpack. If you've seen the movie Brave, uh, Pixar movie Brave, there's a moment where this Scottish guy in de- the defeat of his opponents flips his kilt at them and sa- tells them, feast your eyes, feast your eyes. And so I said, do you mean feast your eyes? And he goes, feast your eyes, feast your eyes. And so he had half of it right. He had like... He, but it didn't quite come out. It was sort of this Franken-trash talk of, of mishmashed ideas. And so what, as absurd as that is, and there's no good segue at this point, but I really wanted to share that. Um, <laughs> th- there's this sort of Franken-gospel, right, that we can be inclined to come up with when we get half of the gospel story, but not all of it. And this can look in many different ways, but the reality is, is that... Um, Many of us um, want the salvation of God. We want Jesus the Savior, but we're not so sure about Jesus the Lord. We want the part where we're saved and, and everything and the deliverance and the hope that comes with that. But then Jesus says things like, follow me. And then we're not so sure. Some of us are inclined, and you've seen these expressions in the Christian faith of, of, where people are inclined to be all about grace And it's all about grace, and it's all about God's grace at the expense of God's truth. And you've seen the flip of that where it's all about truth, and we got to be about truth, and it's all about the truth of God. And it hides, it diminishes, it neglects the grace of God. It fails to demonstrate who God really is. And either way, if we only get half of it, we've made the gospel something that it wasn't meant to be. And we've, whatever our disposition, we must wrestle with the reality that Jesus asks us to both believe and follow. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus as Savior, yes. Jesus as Lord, we have to say yes to that too. Are you happy to watch the Roman empires of this world fall? Do you like to see them diminish and go away? Of course. But what about those seeds of empire in your own heart? What about those seeds of empire in my own heart where I'm inclined to want to protect, to want to expand my interests, my comfort, and maybe at the expense of others? If we're waiting on consolation, then I hope that the Simeon and Anna story this morning reminds us that God is at work. If that's the season you're in, I hope the reality that Jesus' kingdom continues to expand in spite of all of the evil in this world, in spite of every depressing thing you turn on every time you hear the news, that you know that there is a new kind of king and there is a new kind of kingdom and it will outlast all of that junk that you hear and see on TV. And secondly, I would pray that we would find a way to take that next step in obedience to following Jesus more. In the year 2015, if you're looking at resolutions, whether it's framed as a resolution or not, I don't know. But what would it look like if a year from now, you and your life and your family and your profession looked a little bit more like Jesus in your world? Consider that as we pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, God, for the kingdom that you came to establish, a kingdom that will rule forever. Thank you for your invitation to be participate in it. Thank you, God, that in the midst of our despair and our waiting and our longing, God, thank you that you are making all things new. God, many of us in here need consolation. We're awaiting redemption for different 
different subplots of our life and the, the stories and relationships where there's brokenness. And, and God, I pray that while we wait, whether that's coming soon or nowhere near soon enough, God, I pray that in the midst of it, we can find peace, that we can find hope. God, I pray for all of us in here, Lord, that as we walk out these doors, not just this Sunday, but every Sunday, would be a people in this community of Bloomington and the surrounding area who look more and more like you. Father, that this town, this city, that the world around us, God, can see you better, Jesus, because people at Sherwood, people at the churches in this community, Lord, would take it seriously what it means to call you Lord and to bring the hope of your world to those around us. And Jesus, it's in your name I pray this. Amen.